with something as complex as the opioid epidemic, which has reached into just about every community in the U.S., it stands to reason that many sectors of society and many actors are currently needed to address the crisis, upstream and downstream and everywhere in between. And it's going to take time to reduce and reverse the trajectory of addiction that's especially skyrocketed through the pipeline of prescription painkillers. What might an integrated approach look like, and where do we see promising initiatives right now? Well, all this and more coming up on this edition of WIHI, and we want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're here for you live, bi-weekly, and after the show, you can find us on IHI.org or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. In addition to sharing some of the thinking and work that's been going on at IHI, we're thrilled to have two leaders with us today, one from healthcare and the other from the top legal job in state government. They're going to share their perspectives and offer some encouraging news about changing prescriber habits for pain management. So let's get right to introductions. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier. He's going to remind you how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of your screen is our chat window and if you've tuned into WIHI before you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat it's also where you can ask our panelists your questions so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions this allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared now there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today if you're logged onto your computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or headphones you'll see a box in the top right hand corner labeled audio broadcast if you're on a less reliable internet connection, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host of the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI. Please take some time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Matt. All right. Thanks, John. And reminder, also, if you're joining by phone only, you can get hold of today's slides by emailing info at IHI.org. We're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweet so we can get others involved in the social media conversation. All right, let me get right to introductions. Joining us by phone, Joel Hyatt is Emeritus Assistant Regional Director, Community Health Initiatives for the Southern California. California Permanente Medical Group. Recent areas of focus have been medication management, particularly safe opioid prescribing, for which he has been a leader with Kaiser Permanente and other prominent initiatives. Welcome, Joel. Well, thank you. Fantastic. Here in the studio, right across from me, a big welcome to Joseph Foster. He was appointed to serve as Attorney General of New Hampshire by Governor Maggie Hassan in May 2013. Joe Foster's priorities as Chief Law Enforcement Officer and Chief Legal Counsel for the state include protecting children, enhancing public safety, fighting opioid abuse, safeguarding the environment, and fighting for consumers. Thanks for being part of today's program. Thank you. Also in the studio, Lindsay Martin is an IHI Executive Director and Improvement Advisor, focusing on innovation and system-wide improvement. Lindsay oversees IHI's innovation process, working to find new solutions to difficult problems in healthcare. Welcome, Lindsay. Thanks, Madge. And off my left elbow here, we've got Mara Laterman. She's a Senior Research Associate at IHI, leading work in behavioral health. And as a member of IHI's innovation team, she researches, tests, and disseminates innovative content to advance IHI. IHI strategic priorities. So welcome, Mara. Thanks, Matt. And Mara is where we're going to begin. Mara and Lindsay are going to set us off here with some framing and tag team it. This uh, WIHI stems from the work of IHI's innovation team in partnership with others, such as the people on this phone, uh, Joel and Joe as well, to determine how improvement, science, and systems thinking can be brought to bear on this complex opioid crisis. So Mara's going to give us a flavor, at least, because we have limited time always on WHI, but we're going to at least hit some high points on what we've learned so far. Thanks, Mara. Thanks, Madge. 
As part of our innovation work, we started by studying 33 ongoing efforts at different levels. We looked at government programs, at professional associations, at health systems and health plans to really understand what makes programs successful or not. And what we found is that despite a lot of resources and a lot of great efforts going into addressing the opioid crisis, a lot of these efforts have yet to really demonstrate a significant or a widespread impact. And as this map shows, the opioid epidemic really continues to worsen. Um, this shows overdoses over time. And if you looked at that map from 2015, it would continue to be worse. So the biggest theme of our research was that there's a pervasive lack of system design in intervention efforts. We think that a system approach has the potential to address some of the barriers to success that are being faced by efforts around the country. It can help with coordination and collaboration and help spread promising practices around communities. One of the things we did in our innovation work was speak with communities around the country. We talked to police commissioners, EMTs, healthcare, public health, and identified some gaps that we think are, are holding some communities back. Things like uh, not having health care at the table in community coalitions, not having law enforcement at the table, really not having the right people who all need to be working together. We did also see some really interesting bright spots. Right here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there are narcotics detectives who are serving as case managers whose job it is is to help people who are addicted to opioids in their communities. We've seen a lot of drug courts and treatment replacing incarceration. And an interesting story that we heard is a medical examiner who was providing a feedback loop back to providers after a patient had passed away from an opioid overdose. So after they passed away, the HIPAA laws changed and they were able to provide that information back in an interesting new way. So there are definitely bright spots around the country where people are capitalizing on existing resources and seeing positive outcomes. With a community approach, it's really important to understand the geographic variation that's associated with the epidemic. Um, this map shows just one of the ways in which the epidemic looks differently across the country, and there are other ways that it varies as well. Um, one example that uh, we thought was really interesting from Maine, the type of opioid use varies based on the season. So Maine is one geographic area, but seasonally there's variation as well. So in lobster season, when there is more disposable income, Pills are the preferred opioid because they're viewed as safer, but in the off-season when people are still addicted, they end up using heroin because it's cheaper. So really understanding the geographic variation in context is important to success. And one other thing that we wanted to look at was different categories of population. So a system approach needs to think about how we take into account the different populations that are affected by this crisis. And we think that there are four broad categories that need different types of intervention to happen simultaneously. There's the naive patient uh, for whom avoiding starting is the most important. There are high-dose chronic users who are within healthcare and need to be compassionately tapered and moved to alternative pain management. There are people who are opioid dependent but still seeking within healthcare. And then there are people who are opioid dependent and now seeking opioids outside of healthcare. And so while these categories can be fluid, it's important that we think about turning off the faucet while also emptying the bathtub and really targeting population-specific interventions. So based on these gaps and the need for a system-wide approach, our theory of change calls for this coordinated, collaborative, community-wide approach. And Lindsay will talk a little bit about what that looks like. Thanks, Mara. Lindsay. So we put together, and I think you're seeing on the screen right now, a system view for the prescription opioid pathway, thinking about individuals who start in the outpatient setting, recognizing that individuals may start um, using opioids in a variety of settings, but looking at, at you know a person starting on the upper left hand screen, if you're looking at the WebEx right now, we know that a person w may have pain and that they're often prescribed um, opioids, if their provider, their primary care provider, their dentist, we know that 15% of the opioids in the United States are prescribed through dentist or a specialist provide, uh, prescribe that prescription. There is a variety of appropriate times that these medications are prescribed and individuals use them and uh, have pain relief and then move on. Unfortunately, we know that it takes somewhere between 7 and 90 days for opioid dependency to be created. And some individuals can get caught in a dependency loop within the healthcare system where although they were prescribed opioids for a healthcare reason, they become dependent and then begin to seek 
opioids within the healthcare system. We also know that that dependency can move to behavior that is addiction seeking, where they may begin to seek outside of their primary care provider, where rather than being compassionately tapered, they begin to seek um, through means of diversion, obtaining opioids from other locations, or they move to illegally obtained um, pills, heroin, or fentanyl. And once that happens, we see individuals go through multiple rounds of addiction. And so people travel back and forth inside the healthcare system and outside the healthcare system. So when Mara brought up the fact that we talk to individuals at all different points in the system, it's because what became very apparent to us is the opioid crisis is extremely complex. It's multifaceted. And for individuals, it's impossible to look at just one point in the system, looking at just prescribing or just dispensing or just heroin or fentanyl is limited because of the way that individuals seek and become physically addicted to these pills. Um, so what we did was create a, commu- a crisis solution for a community. So we began to say, well, what are the major drivers of the opioid crisis in a community and how would we know if we were achieving success? Could we work to significantly reduce the overdose rate? Could we look at reducing the fatal opioid fatal opioid overdose rate? Can we look at the number of individuals who are in treatment? And can we look at the rate of prescription opioids as well? And when we do that, um, we see that there are four major drivers of, um, of this. The first is we need to limit the supply of opioids. So what does that mean? Well, it means we can limit the, slot, the supply by changing prescribing patterns, by changing dispensing patterns, by looking at diversion, thinking about the actual pharmaceutical production, and thinking about the availability of alternative pain management. So sometimes opioids are prescribed because we have limited awareness or providers may have limited options of alternative pain management treatment. In our work specifically, we didn't focus on uh, the supply of heroin and reducing that or um, fentanyl as well. Then we know that we need to raise awareness of opioid addiction. Mara and I have been constantly surprised by the number of individuals who are not aware that prescription opioids can be just as dangerous um, as heroin. Uh, it's It seems that there's a real lack of that knowledge and that individuals, when they're prescribed by their providers, assume safety. They do not recognize that they could become addicted and then and then wind up with a heroin, a fentanyl, or a prescription opioid problem. Um, we know that adolescent education is extremely important, so we heard story after story of high school athletes who became injured and then addicted to opioids because of that injury. And there needs to be a real reduction in stigma around substance abuse. Madge, we also saw that it was important to think about identifying and managing opioid-dependent populations. So these are individuals who are dependent on opioids. They are within the healthcare system, and they really need compassionate, consistent care that enables them to be tapered off this medication. They need um, education on pain management. There needs to be availability of alternatives to pain management. Providers need to be re-educated on what opioids can and cannot help, as do as do patients. We know that patients are afraid of coming off their pain medication because pain is real. It's very important. Um, But at the same time, the opioid may not be helping at all, and yet we assume that it is. And finally, we need to really address treating opioid-addicted individuals. So these are individuals who are now addicted that they may be seeking within healthcare or likely outside. Um, We need to be able to think about detox, how that has to happen, if that needs to happen on an inpatient or an outpatient setting. We need to know um, if long-term ongoing care is available for those who are addicted. We know it can take several years for an individual um, to really move past the almost acute phase of uh, in recovery and get to an ongoing treatment plan. And we need the supportive social services to be able to do this. And of course, part of this is preventing fatal overdose when it first happens. 
Wow. Okay. Thank you both, Mara and Lindsay. So we hope that you'll kind of grab these slides. Um, maybe we can listen to the show again <laughs> at some point, but keep them in your midst. A lot of, uh, I, I'd say probably we could have a show on just about every one of these boxes here, um, but uh, let's let's go with it and uh, uh, continue onward here, and hopefully you'll start, it looks like people are already, think of some questions to ask our panelists. So Joel Hyatt, let's move on to you in California. Uh, pain management and the prescribing patterns of physicians and other providers are certainly front and center in this epidemic. Kaiser Permanente got a head start on looking hard at opioid prescribing and making changes. I'm curious why that happened and tell us what's been going on. And uh, thanks again also all my panelists for uh, dealing with these uh, smaller time slots. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Joel. Well, thank you. Um so, yes, Kaiser Permanente Southern California got an early start because we uh, started our path on discovery of a problem back in 2009, 2010, um, and I'm going to describe that in a little bit. But uh, just to give you a little context for those of you who are not familiar with Kaiser Permanente, uh, Kaiser Permanente is an integrated healthcare delivery system uh, composed of a health plan. Uh, in Southern California, we've got 4.2 million members. We have our hospital system, with, uh, which includes a pharmacy system, and we have 131 outpatient retail pharmacies in Kaiser Permanente, Southern California, and of course the Southern California Permanente Medical Group. Um, so with the next slide, uh, I mean, what I'm going to try to describe is essentially a systematic a f- a framework for how we address an opioid overprescribing situation in our, in our region. And as I mentioned, we discovered in late 2009 when in the process of our normal drug utilization management work that OxyContin was our number one non-formulary prescribed medication and that hydrocodone medications were the number two prescribed formulary drugs, not hypertension drugs, not cholesterol drugs, not allergy meds, but these opioids. So this really raised some eyebrows, it raised some concerns especially when our own pain management experts warned of some recent emerging evidence about uh, the risks of opioid overuse. And the CDC was coming out with some early uh, trended data showing a prescription opioid epidemic of deaths and overdose in the country. So long story short, we investigated to find that, in fact, you know, there was high dose and high quantity prescribing and frequent flyers and high prescribing physicians in our, in our program. And we brought this concern to leadership with a call to action that Kaiser Permanente be part of the solution and not part of the problem of this opioid overprescribing epidemic in the country. So in retrospect, you know, this all looks simple, what you see on the screen, all of the things that we did, but uh, this was not easy. Uh, but it was a systematic approach and we organized. Uh, we organized a regional steering committee We developed a systematic, comprehensive strategy and a plan and medical center-based teams uh, to address this. Um, Multi-stakeholder groups included primary care, pain management, addiction medicine, physical medicine, psychiatry, neurology, information technology, our legal department, pharmacy particularly, member services, sorry, member services, education. So we implemented some self-imposed policies through our pharmacy and therapeutics committee that restricted initially long-acting opioids like OxyContin and Alpana to just pain management physicians, oncologists, and uh, physicians who were working in palliative care and hospice care. We added these medications to a 30-30 drug benefit, which restricted them to no more than 30 days supply in a prescription and could not be refilled in less than 30 days. And we added um, decision support to our electronic medical record um, that brought up hard stops and warnings and alerts um, that alerted physicians whenever they exceeded certain doses, certain quantities, certain combinations of uh, opioids uh, alone or in combination with benzodiazepines, for example. We implemented some doctor advice tools on the electronic medical record where physicians could contact, uh, primary care physicians could contact specialists in pain management 
just for advice on how to deal with particular patients. We implemented an educational plan. And right now, for example, all new physicians within Kaiser Permanente Southern Cal must complete an educational program on safe opioid prescribing. Our pharmacy was very, very involved, and we um, basically addressed this concept of corresponding responsibility that the pharmacy and the pharmacist have to assure safe opioid prescribing. And this became important in that the pharmacist was empowered to call or escalate issues to the prescribing physician and to the chief of service and even to the medical director if they had concerns about high quantities or high dose, like greater than 120 milligrams of morphine equivalents per day. Um, we use data, and we use data a lot in providing not only monitoring performance, but in providing feedback to physicians and to chiefs of service about uh, progress in, in, uh, in these areas. So we had physician-specific reports, and we'd send letters to physicians with their lists of patients who are on greater than 120 milligrams of morphine equivalents per day, and with recommendations and advice and suggestions for what they could do, including tapering guidelines. We implemented, or we, we leveraged our decision, our peer support, sorry, and our peer pressure, um, and, and worked hard. Actually, it took nine months for us to work on an interspecialty working agreement between primary care and pain management and addiction medicine and other specialties to assure that we were supporting primary care in dealing with these difficult patients and that they always had the specialist available, again, either by telephone, by doctor advice on the medical record, or through formal consultation and uh, referral. We implemented early emergency department and urgent care practices basically following the American Academy of Emergency Medicine guidelines to limit uh, parenteral opioids in the emergency room for patients who are already on chronic opioids, for limiting the quantity to three days uh, for any prescription for opioids out of the emergency department. And of course, ultimately, this led to more widespread community collaboration. So the, the the frosting on the cake is the next slide, and basically over a six-year period, we have achieved results. And these results can be achieved in any healthcare program and any organization. We've lowered OxyContin prescribing, as you can see, and Apana prescribing. We have 98% lower opioid acetaminophen prescriptions that are over 200 tabs. In fact, there's no prescription now coming out of this region that are greater than 100 tabs per day. And our last month was 47 tabs in a prescription was the largest quantity. We've had 95% lower brand opioid prescriptions when a generic's available. And this is an issue that Joe, I think, may be addressing in that brand drugs, brand prescription opioids have higher street value for diversion. The Trinity prescribing, which is the combination of opioids, benzo benzos, and carisoprodol, which is Soma, have dropped 84%, and we have 26% fewer patients on high-dose opioids, greater than 120 per day. So we believe that this systematic approach throughout a delivery system um, is demonstrating results, and the work isn't over. So hopefully we are becoming part of the solution to the problem of opioid overprescribing in, in the U.S. And I'm going to stop there so that Joe can describe what's going on and we can uh, respond to questions later. Thank you. Thank you for being uh, so cogent. Uh, and it's actually, it's a very, very impressive story. And I'm sure folks have, as I might, uh, the, the a thousand uh, questions about the how and where you met resistance and whatever. I want to promise uh, the WHI community here and others that uh, we'll do more. We'll do more here and uh, in other ways to be uh, educating and talking about uh, things as we learn. So we're kind of putting our toes in the water with today's program. And thanks for all the comments on chat as well. All right, I want to uh, turn next to the Attorney General of New Hampshire, Joe Foster. It's great to have you on the program. And I guess um, maybe listeners would be cu curious, as I am, how the AG's office ends up uh, wound into this situation. And you're looking at a lot of moving parts right now. And I'm wondering, uh, apart from being in maybe some kind of a catbird seat there, what you feel that you can impact as well. And thanks again for being part of the show. Sure. Thanks, Madge. I'm really glad to be here. 
you know, as the state's chief law enforcement officer and its chief legal officer, I've had a significant involvement in the, in the opioid fight. Substance abuse, in particular opioid abuse, is the biggest law enforcement problem and the biggest public health issue uh, facing New Hampshire, and that's what sort of makes it a unique problem, the law enforcement and public health piece of it at the same time. Your substance abuse, it adversely impacts our neighborhoods, our schools, our health care system, our courts, our prisons, our first responders, our businesses, and our highways. And it impacts people of all races, all genders, all ages, and all socioeconomic classes. It really um, impacts everyone. And recent polls taken in New Hampshire reflect on that. If, if you poll New Hampshire people here and ask them what the number one issue that's concerning them. It's not jobs. It's not global warming. It's opiate abuse. It is the number one issue that pulls out. And that's because we have a very, very bad drug problem um, in New Hampshire, and it's really reached epidemic proportion. And I'm going to show you um, some slides that really reflect that. As you can see here, um, back um, in 2000 before, New Hampshire had only about 50 overdose deaths. By 2015, that number had grown to 430. And to put that number in some perspective, New Hampshire has a population of about 1.3 million people. And if the U.S. as a whole had the same rate per capita, the country would have had over 100 overdose deaths. And I think it's about 50,000 overdose deaths. So our rate is way higher. In uh, the next slide, um, I show the, the deaths by geography, and you know, the upper part of New Hampshire is very sparsely populated. The southern half near Massachusetts is much more so, but it really doesn't matter where you live. You can see there are overdose deaths throughout the state, near the Massachusetts border, and up in small towns near Quebec. And the next slide um, reflects um, overdoses that where Narcan was treated. Uh, naloxone, I think, is the generic name, but it's, a, it's an opioid antagonist that actually brings people back who are, have a severe overdose. Our New Hampshire Bureau uh, reported that there were over 4,200 doses of Narcan that were administered um, in the state in 2015. And the last slide sort of uh, reflects the um, the areas uh, or the or the or the, the, the drugs that caused the death of the 433 confirmed drug deaths last year. 91.5 percent were caused caused by opiates and opioids, and about 65 percent of those were uh, caused exclusively or partially by fentanyl. And so what? Um, can I do and what have I done as AG? Now, essentially, there's sort of two pathways to address the problem. One is to reduce supply. The other, reduce demand. Impacting supply is really a law enforcement function, and my colleagues in the law enforcement community have and will continue to focus on interdiction, apprehending and prosecuting drug dealers. To do that, coordination among state, local, and federal agencies is critical, and coordination interstate is key as well, and I can tell you that's happening among the states. An initiative I've commenced is directing the scenes of overdose deaths be treated as crime scenes. Um, you would think that was always the case, but it really isn't. They were often referred to as just an untimely death. Doing so will allow us to gather evidence and to prosecute dealers who sold the drugs to the overdose victims under what's called our, under our Controlled Drug Act, a death-resulting case, or particularly where fentanyl might be involved, we're considering second-degree murder charges. Now, when I'm talking about fentanyl, I'm talking about illegally manufactured fentanyl. It's mostly comes from Mexico. It's about 50 times stronger than heroin, if you can imagine that, and therefore selling it is just inherently reckless. And to give you a sense of its toxicity, in our state lab that, that tests um, drugs as they come in to find out what they are, people are so fearful that they've requested that Narcan be on site and they've gotten treated, uh, training on how to administer it because they're concerned that if they touch it or inadvertently ingest it, they could overdose and die. It's just that, that powerful. Now, all that said, we can't arrest our way out of the problem. I think anybody in law enforcement you talk to will tell you that. Um, and if we can reduce demand, supply will follow. And New Hampshire was uh, pretty far behind the curve until very recently, but I think we're on the pathway to tackle the problem. In 2015, we passed some laws making it easier to obtain Narcan and also passed a Good Samaritan law, which limits the ability of law enforcement to prosecute folks who call in a drug overdose death. Um, the governor um, uh, late last year, uh, early last year, um, created a position colloquially that we called the drug czar, and that person is to coordinate efforts. And she also began convening meetings of, of her commissioners whose jurisdiction in just some way might touch the opioid epidemic. 
Um, so that includes uh, commissioners of education, health and human services, corrections, labor, insurance, safety in my office. We meet weekly on Wednesdays, um, and at that meeting we share ideas, coordinate, collaborate, and frankly hold one another accountable um, on this issue. The governor also called for a special session of the legislature late last year, and they created an opioid task force that produced a number of pieces of legislation that are working their way through the uh, New Hampshire legislature right now. Um, ones that have passed include uh, requiring physicians to query the state's uh, prescription drug monitoring program. Before, you had to register, but you didn't have to use it. Now you're going to have to use it in most instances, and in fact, a law going working its way through is going to even make that more restrictive. Um, also, it requires that prescription data be uh, submitted into the system daily from the pharmacist. It mandates safe opiate prescribing education for prescribers. It enhanced penalties for the sale of fentanyl, um, and it reauthorized um, our state's uh, Medicaid expansion program called the New Hampshire Health Protection Program, and that's critical because that brings it with us a substance abuse benefit, which means that people, uh, the, our provider network will be built out. We, legislation still in process includes expanding funding for our drug courts, easing rules on drug take back at uh, pharmacies can now take, uh, will be able to take back um, the, the, the unused opiate medications. Um, we're also mandating uh, the adoption of safe and responsible opiate prescribing rules by all professional boards, not just the medical board, but dentists, vets, um, and anybody else who can prescribe um, opiates. And my office has been very active in that particular area. Um, and all pieces of legislation, particularly that. Um, and the other thing we've done is we've launched an investigation into the marketing of opioids by pharmaceutical companies to determine if they are uh, making false claims to physicians. And at first blush, um, working on prescriber rules and also uh, doing an investigation may not seem uh, to be related, but I think they really are. Uh, deceptive marketing by pharmaceuticals and overprescribing by well-meaning physicians appears to have um, created addicts in our country. Opioids, I don't think, are, are, are uh, they've been sort of worked into our daily lives through prescribing patterns that, you know, 25 years ago would have been viewed as irresponsible. And we've all heard the statistics from 99 to 2010. Uh, the number of opioids sold to our pharmacies and hospitals quadrupled, and uh, statistics that are often uh, entered about with 5% of the world's population, Americans consume 80% of the world's opiates. Um, and sadly, there's little doubt that this prescribing leads to the overdose deaths that I showed before that are caused by fentanyl and heroin. CDC guidelines reflect, I think, four out of five individuals who get um, hooked on prescription opiates, um, four, four to five uh, that are on heroin were first um, uh, addicted to prescription opiates. And uh, there's a statistic that says that um, uh, people are, are, are hooked on prescription opiates are 40% more likely to become addicted to heroin. So to reduce that, I decided to investigate the pharmaceuticals and um, also to work on the prescribing rules. Yeah, when I began as AG, I can say that the, um, the law enforcement community in New Hampshire felt they were fighting the battle alone. Now we see the public officials um, stepping up, and I also think the medical community is now stepping up, and I don't think it was before. And there was initial pushback on the prescriber rules and some of the other things that I've mentioned, but I think the, the medical community is coming on board and, and, and collaborating. And you know, my sincere hope is that over time there will be uh, fewer new addicts created and overdose deaths. Wow. I think that you, Joe uh, Foster <laughs> from New Hampshire, you hit upon uh, just about everything that would possibly be in your purview. Uh, and I think possibly be able to affect and influence in many different ways uh, through the engagement, the collaboration, rules, laws, efforts, investigations. Uh, I heard a lot of very uh, active verbs. So thank you for laying all that out. I hope you all have some questions. I'm very cognizant of the fact that the chat is uh, going strong and many of you are answering each other's questions and uh, commentary, and I appreciate that. Uh, John, just a quick reminder to everybody about uh, how to chat just to make sure everyone can take part. Yeah, please uh, make sure that your uh, questions and comments are addressed to all participants in the send to bar down at the bottom of the chat, and that's why that way everybody can read what you're asking. All right, thank you, and we'll try and get through as many of these as possible, and try I'll try and group some of them together. Um, one of the neat things uh, to remind also all of you is you can download the chat when you get off the show today. You have a rich resource about what others are doing uh, around the country, and we often have an international audience as well. So hold 
hold on to this uh, for for your reference. This will also be posted to the um, IHI.org website. Joe, I'm going to ask you one question. Uh, it's a more recent one that came in, uh, a kind of underlying issues. Uh, to what or to what things might you attribute uh, the s- serious drug problems in New Hampshire, kind of as you think about and as others think about the underlying issues there? Yeah, I, you know, we've we've wondered about that. I think one of the problems that the state had is uh, it came late to the, the game on the, on the prescription drug monitoring program. I think we were like the 48th state to adopt it. Um, our provider network um, is is really sparse. We don't have enough um, uh, individuals to help people with addiction. That's why, as I said, the uh, Medicaid expansion and the New Hampshire Health Protection Program is so important because I think it's going to help that be built out. Um, you know, the state also has a serious alcohol problem, too. Um, it, it's possible there's, um, you know, some pre- predisposition in the state for it. Um, you know, so it's, I think it's probably multifaceted. But, you know, the first two things I said are things that we can definitely affect it. And, um, it, you know, the state needs to do more around education and prevention, too, too in the schools that it's been doing. Okay. One other quick question. I think I'll tag on to this. Any knowledge or information about marijuana use, somebody is asking, and its relationship to this, uh, since this person says uh, some people are saying that maybe marijuana might be a solution and part of a remedy here. Uh, sorry to keep putting you on the hot spot. <laughs> I'll move around. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I know there are some that um, believe that. Um, I, I think there's 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 a physician actually in New Hampshire who I know has an ownership in one of our uh, medicinal marijuana um, ATCs that are just now getting launched. Who does believe that's a way to get people off opiates? Um, you know, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. I, I I'm hopeful that uh, more research can be done around marijuana and its risks. I I think with young people, the, um, the, the, the there's a real question as to whether um, smoking can cause long-term long-term harm. So um, hopefully there'll be more research done in the coming years and months. The federal government will make it easier. It hasn't been, to my mind, um, extensively researched. I, I should, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, say that my wife is a physician, and she's talked to me a lot about it. She's read a lot of the studies. Um, there are, I don't think there's great studies out yet on that. Okay, great. Well, thanks uh, for those thoughts uh, and I, others who are weighing in as well. Let me uh, throw one to you, Mara. Somebody is saying, and I think it has more to do with just so much information that we're imparting in a short amount of time here. Somebody is saying, oh, I'm not hearing enough about mental health support here. Um, I, I don't think, I, I think that's very much uh, in, in your uh, system thinking here. Um, maybe want to pop it out just a little bit more about uh, your thinking on that, yours and Lindsay's. Sure. So I think, you know, a shortage of mental and behavioral health providers has contributed to this, both people who are able to provide long-term behavioral therapy, but also a shortage of physicians who are able to prescribe medication-assisted treatment. So there's kind of that element of treatment and then the element of the long-term behavioral support that needs to go along with the medication-assisted treatment. I think as organizations are integrating behavioral health into primary care in particular, there is an increase in providers who have the capacity to support people with substance abuse issues more and more. I think up until recently, primary care just you know wasn't as able to have the capacity to support those individuals, but as integration kind of takes hold, that capacity is increasing, and primary care providers are seeing these patients in their clinic and are really kind of increasing their ability to help them. But I think that there is a real shortage both of the providers who can uh, provide MAT and then of providers for the ongoing behavioral support. Okay. Uh, Lindsay, anything you want to add there? Well, we know that it's a long it's a long road to recovery and that it's an ongoing life battle. Um, and so I think really thinking about how much treatment um, and how many providers are necessary, we sort of underestimate. We've heard from one provider that he um, frequently sees 80% of people fail their first time in treatment. Um, and so that's a really high percent. This is a really powerful substance, and it takes a lot to f- get past the physical addiction um, and to be able to address the ongoing behavioral and social needs as well. Okay. It's a long time. Okay, thank you. Uh, Joel, a, pro, a question for you. There are probably a bunch of them in here. I'm going to start with this one. Did lower opioid prescribing lead to more heroin use? Uh-oh, didn't lose Joel, did I? Keep going. Joel, oh. Now I can hear you. Go ahead. Yep. Okay, good. Um, Well, we don't know that. Uh, From a delivery system perspective, um, uh, 
we are working with our public health departments to try to monitor and track opioid, uh, sorry, overdose and death uh, in the community and, uh, and even coroner cases, looking at uh, coroner cases uh, to, you know, assess, you know, what led up to that death. But at this point, I, I don't know that anybody can really report that reducing opioid prescribing has reduced heroin deaths. In fact, there's a concern, uh, albeit not necessarily proven, but a concern that uh, two, on two fronts, one that opioid prescriptions are often a prelude and lead into uh, the use of street drugs. Uh, as patients are having more difficulty getting prescription opioids, they may be turning more to illicit drug sources. Um, and, you know, and that may be leading to some of the uh, fentanyl and, uh, and her increase in heroin deaths that have been reported. I think that the solution to that is that we all need to be working together. This isn't just a healthcare delivery system issue, it's a community issue, as Mara and Lindsay have pointed out, and, and Joe. And so we need to start building coalitions and collaborations among all community partners in law enforcement, in medical examiner, in schools, in business, um, to, to really tackle this problem community-wide. Thank you. Uh, Lindsay? I just want to add, there's a there's a question that came on the chat that I want to be really clear. I think everyone here feels strongly about, about what do we do about people who are in palliative care treatment and at end of life and those who need opioids. And I, I don't think any of the speakers on the program are, are addressing that population at all. Um, we explicitly uh, said, you know, in our work that that's not part of what we're doing, that pain management, especially for those at the end of life, is of utmost importance and opioids are an appropriate use um, in terminally ill patients. So just want to be clear that that's not, that's not part of this conversation um, and that we do want to continue to make people comfortable at the end of life. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Joel, I'm going to throw one more at you. Uh, somebody is saying that you speak to decreases in prescribing. Could you comment on some other benchmarks uh, maybe that were mentioned at the start, overdose rate, overdose death rate, numbers in treatment, that kind of thing, or maybe just a quick uh, reminder of the things that you're tracking? Okay. Uh, thank you for the question. And everybody's always interested in the correlation between reduced prescribing and, you know, do we see any effect on outcomes? The, the only outcomes I can report on are satisfaction. Uh, there's a concern that uh, cutting back essentially on opioid medications is going to lead to increased patient dissatisfaction with care. Uh, and in fact, there are CAPS questions and uh, uh, to that effect, and we have not seen that. In fact, uh, satisfaction in our emergency department has actually improved since we have implemented safe opioid prescribing uh, guidelines. And I would just append that by saying, you know, reduction in opioid prescribing does not mean reduction in pain management treatment. Uh, we are supporting appropriate pain management simply using more evidence-based, effective approaches such as non-opioid prescription uh, medications and over-the-counter medications, massage, uh, physical therapy, acupuncture, pressure, um, and the like. Thank you very much. Somebody asked an interesting question whether this was kind of the analogous situation at one level between patient and provider around use of antibiotics uh, and prescribing pain. and. Uh, Consequences they go in different directions. You know what types of consequences, uh, Lindsay? Any thoughts on that? We we actually looked into it, um, and it's come up multiple times. I know the CDC actually was thinking a fair bit about it. There are some similarities, right, in a, a perception of I think this will help me. This is in fact not going to help you. Um, and education both at the provider and the patient level. Um, the, the point where they diverge is the kind of addictive behavior um, and the addictive nature of opioids. But I do think there's a lot to learn about the kind of re-education, both at the provider level, because we 
have to remember that providers were educated to use opioids to reduce pain. Um, there was a huge push to be able to do that, and patients believe that they should, in fact, have that pain relief, and the opioids are the way to do it, just as we wanted to make sure we used antibiotics to try to, you know, prevent infection and drive it out as fast as possible, and individuals believe that that was the solution, whereas we know that that's frequently not the solution. So there are similarities in the education piece that I think has to happen. Great. Thank you. Another question. I'm going to head over to Joel now uh, from New Hampshire. Uh, Somebody is asking whether or not uh, there's been any thought or what are the panelists' thoughts on safe injection clinics for heroin users? Somebody's saying these are quite prevalent in New York City. In the panoply of things uh, being thought about, uh, where might that fit in? That hasn't been talked about too extensively in New Hampshire. There is a bill working its way through the legislature on needle exchanges, um, you know, which is not, not not the same thing, obviously, but it's 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 part of that that, that related issue. Um, it's getting hung up because um, uh, people want to exclude trace amounts of heroin as being, um, uh, you know, something that you're trading in. Um, so I, I don't think that's something that's going to come our way too soon, but you know, it, it may be working in, in other states and should be looked at. Thank you. Here's a comment uh, that maybe I'll throw out. Somebody is saying it's kind of obviously feeling that physicians are getting blamed. And uh, this comment says, annoying for physician irresponsibility to be blamed for this crisis. Fifteen years ago, physicians were being castigated for not adequately responding to their patients' pain, and they were urged to be more generous with prescriptions for opioids. So that, I'm sure, is something that you're hearing a lot, and I'm sure many on the program. Uh, Any thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, it's very much... Now, prescriber patterns and habits and how one goes about this in a way uh, to better treat pain, perhaps alternatives to pain management, understanding vulnerabilities now around addiction. We're kind of at a different place. I think others are trying to address that it's not a matter of blame, but uh, thoughts uh, that you're seeing, Joel. I don't mean to put any, any one of you could speak to that, Joel, too. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead, Joe. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, you do, you do get get a lot of sense of that. Um, you know, what what happened in our state initially was the the governor actually uh, directed the board of medicine to issue emergency prescribing rules, um, and um, that meant they had to be put in place. I think in thirty or sixty days initially. That got a lot of pushback from the medical community. I mean, look, they they were you know it's the fifth vital sign. Um, patients come in, they demand it. Um, I think that there was miseducation, I believe, um, from the pharmaceuticals that went on for an awful long period of time. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I've been doing is um, having people read a book called Dreamland, which um, talks about, um, you know, the marketing of, uh, of um, Oxycontin as well as um, black tar heroin and the linkage there. And when you read that book, I think it's, it's very eye-opening for, for um, anybody who reads it, but including doctors. Um, they do feel blamed. I understand why they feel blamed, but nobody's trying to ascribe blame. I think the, the, the goal of, for example, our, our opiate prescribing guidelines and some of the other things we're doing is to get doctors to rethink what they're doing. Um, and I think it's going to take a long time. I mean, this is not, not a quick fix, but I think over time it'll, it'll create a, a lot of help. Thanks, Joe. Joel, uh, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, here you've been at this, and you have these results, and uh, were providers in, K, in the Permanente group and KP kind of unique in uh, uh, not feeling somehow <laughs> that they were uh, kind of being targeted in some way? I'm curious, did you go through a different experience around this? No, I think we uh, share the same uh, patterns that uh, existed in the community. And, I, again, I think it's, it's a little late to go blaming, but it is helpful to understand how, do we, how did we get to where we were back in 2009, 2010. Um, and as Joe said, there, the pharmaceutical industry has been very influential in uh, promoting opioids. Uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals particularly was... Uh, criminally fined for false marketing and promoting uh, OxyContin as if it were a safe, non-addicting medication. Um, you know, the, the pain is a fifth vital sign. A lot of things contributed to heightened awareness about pain management and to the overprescribing. Uh, I think the, the, the opportunity now is to fall back on what the evidence shows. And the evidence supports that opioids are dangerous, high risk, they should not be first-line drugs, and all of these points are, are uh, 
being expressed through the, the latest CDC guidelines, which several uh, of your participants have, have mentioned, um, which are quoting the, the latest evidence. And, uh, you know, that's really where we need to be turning to uh, to change this. And then using a systematic approach uh, through a delivery system, through communities, to basically embed the right thing to do, the safe thing to do, in our practices. Thank you very much. Question for uh, Mara. Somebody is asking about, uh, I want to get back to your four populations, uh, the naive patient. Uh, has anybody seen any effective campaigns that might uh, sort of be targeting that group, uh, avoid starting, thus preventing opportunities for opioid, uh, sort of un, maybe unsuspectingly getting kind of caught in something? I think that's a place where providers can use some of the screening tools at their disposal to identify whether somebody might be at higher risk of abuse or dependence and to really figure out whether an opioid is absolutely the appropriate solution. I know Joel at Kaiser has a lot of prompts in the EHR that kind of red flag, are you sure this is what you want to do? Are you sure this is what you want to do? So I think there's a lot for providers to do there. In terms of kind of public health campaigns, I can't think off the top of my head of a particular campaign that is targeting naive users, but I think that's where the opportunity lies in educating patients, as Lindsay said, that opioids are, are dangerous, that it's like having heroin in your medicine cabinet, and really setting expectations around what to expect from pain management. There was a recent article in JAMA by Tom Lee, I think it was called Zero Pain is Not the Answer or Not the Expectation, and I think really setting expectations about pain management is an important thing for that group as well. All right, thanks. Lindsay, let me try this one on you. Somebody earlier in the chat in the scroll asked about students in the health professions, and they're at a pivotal moment in their uh, education and development and moving into systems now. Uh, sort of, somebody was asking almost practically, what are some three things or two things that students could start doing right now? So that we've been talking with the IHI Open School about students um, and the chapter work and what they can be doing. I think there's a couple great things about students, which is, one, we have this opportunity to not have to re-educate. So some of what we were talking about with providers is they were given information that they now need to relearn um, a new way of pain management because the way they were taught is not um, effective. So with students, we have the ability to really teach appropriate pain management. We have the ability to teach the dangers of opioids when they should be used, the appropriate populations, dosing, and whatnot. And we also have this opportunity to try to um, have them learn more about alternative pain management and solutions that may exist for individuals outside. The other area that we're seeing students start to get involved um, is because they're younger at the kind of high school level. So having students go and do kind of public health work in schools, talking about the dangers of opioids. Again, there are just any number of countless tragic stories about high school students you know, sports are be, are more and more important. You know, children are pushed. They get injured. We know these things happen, and yet they inadvertently become addicted to opioids because of an injury. So if we can use students um, in the community to really talk about the real dangers of opioids um, that are prescribed, I think that's another really useful mechanism. The other thing we see kind of as a recreational use um, is uh, younger people uh, taking pills through the form of diversion from their parents' medicine cabinets and then using them at a party, assuming that a pharmaceutical pill is not as dangerous as heroin or fentanyl or other um, means, and, and it is, and it can be even more dangerous. And so um, having students work with the communities from that regard is really helpful, too. Those are two things we're seeing from some of the students in the open school. Thank you very much. All right, we're getting to the part of the show where we're going to have some wrap-up remarks. I want to just ask Joe uh, one more question, though, from the chat. Somebody was, there's a little back and forth going on about the role of pharmacists and pharmacy. Uh, somebody speaking of kind of an innovative program where pharmacists are in some capacity able to flag certain things, uh, and I'm curious whether this is in any way kind of layered into what's up going, what's going on right now in New Hampshire. I mean, a bit. The PDMP um, does have the ability. Uh, obviously, it, it, it provides information for a pharmacist, and f occasionally, pharmacists will report in um, trends or issues that they see with with uh, prescribing to us. Um, I, I think it is an important area. Okay. 
Um, you know, the the other thing that I've I've mentioned before is these drug take backs that I think uh, pharmacies, uh, Walgreens has agreed to do this. I think nationwide um, to to put drug take back um, facilities. Um, uh, Lindsay was talking about diversion. Um, one of the things that happens ever so frequently is people get a prescription. They use four of the 30 tabs, and they stay in their medicine cabinet, and, and they're diverted. Um, and the drug takebacks are huge. I mean, I have, I have a statistic here. 4.1 million pounds of unused medications were uh, taken back in DEA takebacks from 2010 to 2014. That just tells you the level of overprescribing that's out there, that there's that much in people's cabinets, and that's what's coming back. So that's another important area that pharmacies can help out. Okay, great. Thank you. All right, let's go around the horn. I'll start with Joel. Um, given all that you've shared with us, <laughs> a several year story of, of work and kind of what are your on your frontiers right now? Uh, Joel, just in sort of our remaining moments here, we'll go around the horn and uh, see what kind of watch this space. I also want to mention to everybody very quickly, I did see some uh, comments in the chat about neonates and uh, substance abuse and, uh, you know, being born with, with addiction. Uh, just a heads up that we're going to be talking about that and in some innovative programs on June 2nd on WIHI, so look forward to that. Um, so let me start with you, Joel, and just some final thoughts and uh, kind of if we were to call you up in, <laughs> I don't know, in a couple of months, uh, what, what would you be in the thick of with this? Thanks. Well, thank you. Well, first of all, I mean, I would just preface by saying that everything we have done can be done in any setting. Uh, we're often accused that Kaiser Permanente is unique uh, we, we, we face, believe me, all of the same uh, resistance and pushback and, uh, and uh, barriers that uh, anyone would face. Uh, but I would say that right now we're turning to increased focus on helping our frontline physicians, primary care physicians, taper. Uh, tapering is an uneasy process. Most people don't have a lot of experience with it, and these are often difficult patients. Uh, we are focusing a lot on community collaboration, as I mentioned, working with other healthcare organizations, public health, mental health uh, in the community, uh, because this is not just a, a single organizational problem. We're focusing a lot on medication-assisted treatment, naloxone use, and uh, as some of the questions have reported, uh, also focusing on the, some of the surgical use. And I'm happy to report that in our community collaboration work, the Dental Society, uh, which in some reports uh, prescribe up to 20% of hydrocodone in the community, uh, the Dental Society has been very eager to join in this effort um, and have issued, I think Pennsylvania State has issued some recent safe opioid prescribing in dental practice. So those are the areas that we would be working on if you called me up in two months. Okay, we'll do that. Okay, thanks so much for your participation. Uh, Lindsay and Mara, kind of just some uh, wrap-up thoughts, and then I'll give Joe the last word. Go ahead. Sure. I think, Madge, the thing we've seen most um, effectively is there's so much blame to go around, and this was almost a perfect storm of different kinds of influences that got us to the point where we are. The communities that we're seeing be most successful are not thinking about that. They're thinking about the resources they have in their communities and how to tie them together, and they're really working across those resources. So we're seeing resources be used in different ways um, in conjunction with each other, kind of moving beyond the healthcare-specific, EMT-specific, police-force-specific um, approaches. And so that's what I really encourage individuals to do is look at the resources that exist in their community to take the first steps moving forward. Okay, thanks. And just to build on what Lindsay was saying, I think there's been so much attention paid to the epidemic. It's not a matter of will. It's more of a matter now of how to do this. And I think ideas like from, from Joel and from other organizations and communities are really out there for people to take from. There's no reason to really start from scratch. And I think bringing together all of the right people at the table and really thinking through what it will take to reverse the crisis in their particular community, I think that will start hopefully seeing a change in the trajectory soon. Okay. Thank you so much, Lindsay and Mara and, and, and Joe. And we, since you're not not too far from us. We hope we can welcome you back in the studio uh, as we continue to follow this. Yes. Final thoughts yet? Yeah. You know, when I when I came on this job about three years ago, our office has an undercover drug task force, and um, I, I think I noted uh, in the in the geography you saw 
that this problem is all over statewide. And we were doing um, undercover buys, our, our, our officers, every single night. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is a huge problem. It's a problem the law enforcement community understood was there. And the deaths that I put up there are incredibly sad, That, that the, the 430 that we got up to. But what it did do is it focused the state on the problem, um, you know, the, 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 the number of deaths and the, and the frequency of them. And I'm really optimistic. And uh, as I said, I think the, the law enforcement community um, saw the problem, knew it's there, know they can't arrest their way out of it by uh, engaging the medical community and our public officials. I think the state is really getting in the right direction, and I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic it's going to take a long time to solve the problem, but I think we're on the right track. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for uh, joining us. I want to thank all our panelists today, Joel Hyatt, Joe Foster, uh, Lindsay Martin, and Mara Laderman so much. And thank you for being such a fabulous uh, audience and all your engagement and your questions and your comments on chat. Don't forget, you can download this document. Uh, you'll be prompted to do so uh, when you log off the program today, it will also be posted to our website uh, tomorrow. Next up on WIHI, uh, May 5th, we're going to be talking about joy in work, an antidote to today's burnout in health care. A uh, reminder also that uh, you can fill out a brief survey uh, when uh, you log off the program today that lets us know what you got out of the show and how we can continue to make it worth your while. And don't forget that you can find the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast cast provider. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org and there are a great number of people who help make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, and Haley Ladd. A big thank you to Alex Anderson from the Innovation Team for his help on Twitter today. And as always, uh, as complex as it is sometimes, it is my privilege to host a program that's about spirit learning and improving health and patient care most of all for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement thanks everyone I'm Madge Kaplan good day